We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willers getting booking the guests. And the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, the big story. Uh, a man who killed four members of a Muslim family and injured a fifth in London committed an act of terrorism. An Ontario Supreme or Superior Court justice has concluded uh, today, uh, and the justice calls it a textbook example of a lone wolf terrorist attack. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Also... And, you know, this really is, is sort of a Toronto story, but I thought it was fascinating, and it applies whether you're in Hamilton, London, or whatever. Uh, but uh, Premier Doug Ford meets up with the Olivia Chow, and they're just, oh, they're buddies. It's hilarious. They're, they're tossing beers back together. All, huh? Okay, maybe not. So uh, anyway, he's in Toronto and he's uh, giving them like millions of dollars. And the reason being is because they've overachieved on their housing targets. How does that happen <laughs> when everybody else is struggling just to even uh, catch up? Uh, well, I guess the targets are catching up. Um, but yeah, fascinating. And it raises the question, so what are we doing in all the other towns and cities? Uh, are they going to be getting bonuses as well for hitting uh, their targets? Because we keep hearing we're failing to reach those. So I try to figure that out over the course of uh, the afternoon. Also, another interesting story. You don't hear this very often uh, under the current prime minister, the largest gun bust in Ontario history. Uh, the OPP and U.S. authorities have uh, cracked a, a what they're calling a pipeline between Ontario and Florida, Florida and Ontario. Uh, and where uh, a pipeline of guns coming up here, and often they're they're turned within uh, hours, turned over, uh, meaning flipped and sold to other people within an hour or two of even arriving uh, into this country. So the largest gun bust in history, with the OPP and the U.S. working together, it seems finally. Why is this all happening now? It's very unusual. And uh, Canada getting more pressure from NATO to meet, uh, to meet its targets and reminding us that we're a G7 country and uh, others are doing the same. And also, a uh, special guest coming up a little later on. And, you know, we put uh, invitations out to anybody who wants to come on. Pierre Polyev is uh, going to be joining the show at 535, which should be fascinating um, because, you know, there's so many political things to talk about. Uh, and, and, you know, we've talked about this with uh, with PolySci uh, pundits and, and whatever. Uh, obviously, the, the prime minister is heading down. He's heading down, 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 down. The polls are continuing to 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 drop. And at the end of the day, many are concerned, are afraid that, the conservatives will just shoot themselves in the foot. And uh, uh, I talked about this last week with Tim Powers and the whole gender issue topic, which has now come up. Um, but again, as Tim Powers said, it's not knocking things like affordability, housing crisis, healthcare crisis, grocery prices, all of that. It, it's not taking the place of that. And, you know, one of my first questions to uh, Pierre Polyev is going to be this afternoon. Uh, are you concerned that this is going to become a, another wedge issue uh, for the liberals? And while we're all talking about affordability, this is where the election will end 
end up going. So uh, we'll pose that and other questions too. Uh, Pierre Polyev coming up after uh, the 530 News. And uh, if you want to get a question in, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. If you've got a question, uh, we'll see if we can put it forth. And, you know, you usually get like two or three in here. and That's about it because they go off and they, um, you know, they start down their path. But uh, if we get enough of the same question, we'll certainly uh, pose it to them. So if you've got a question, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Listen, uh, make sure you're listening at 535 and uh, we'll uh, hopefully get some of those questions to Pierre Polyev. All right, there you go. What else we got? Uh, coming up this hour, Hamilton International Airport. This is a story that came out the other day. And, and you know, some sort of got their noses up about it. Like, is this stealing um, uh, customers from Hamilton International Airport? And, you know, I never really saw it as a competition between Toronto and Hamilton. They do different services for different people and have different, uh, different core industries, I guess. Uh, so anyway, they're offering Air Canada a luxury bus service to Pearson Airport from Hamilton as well as Waterloo. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Does that, is that any reason for uh, those at the airport or anyone else to have their noses out of joint? Or is this an opportunity? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And did you know that today is Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day? Well, you do now. And you're going to learn even more coming up a little later on. That's all we try to do here. Just try to learn more. Uh, and this is incredible technology. And, you know, you talk about AI and you talk about, you know, technology being used for bad uh, or evil and not good. Uh, brainwave powered tech allows Canadian kids who are trapped in their own bodies to play. Just think about that. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, a poor child who's perhaps confined to a wheelchair. Just the thought or, or, or the idea of movement in their mind can actually help them uh, find their victories, small victories, but still uh, incredible that what we can do now. And we'll find out more about that coming up uh, a little later on. What else we got? Oh, uh, we'll weigh in on the Stony Creek Municipal Parking Lot issue. We knew this would happen. Here's what we're talking about Toronto getting money for building target houses. We, we're not sure what we can do with the parking lot. I know. I know. Uh, we'll chat about that coming up a little later on. Hamilton International Airport and an interesting shuttle that is going on out of there to Toronto and and the Air Canada terminal there. And, you know, it's fascinating as we, you know, try to piecemeal uh, transportation together and and try to uh, bring more of these hubs uh, in unison and and use one and, and another different ideas that come up but Air Canada is launching a pilot project in Hamilton and in Waterloo region that will allow travelers to check in at the local airport uh, before being whisked away off to Pearson in a luxury bus there you go does that mean it has like uh, food and snacks and cocktails can I get a, an espresso martini? Uh, I, I guess you can get anything you pay for. Or you could perhaps bring your own. Uh, while, uh, while the service will not be available uh, until May, Air Canada says passengers can book the service now. What does this mean? Does it help our airport in any way? What is the opinion? Let's bring in Cole Horncastle, Executive Managing Director, Hamilton International Airport. And here now, Cole, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So, Cole, what are your thoughts with this? Is this good? Is are they eating your lunch? What what's happening? Is this how how do you receive this? <laughs> no, I think it's it's great news here. You know, being a regional airport, it's always unique being so close to Pearson. You know, 
how can we actually uh, work together in certain ways? And I think Air Canada with Landline here has found a very unique way to get passengers to use and, you know, experience the Hamilton facility here and feed in and Air Canada, feed into Air Canada's hub at Toronto Pearson. I think passengers will only benefit from this, having another unique way to get to Pearson um, and while using the convenient hassle-free services at Hamilton. So again, and, and you know, many Hamiltonians have a have a chip on the shoulder about uh, Toronto. So whenever th- anything ever tries to merge, or what have you? But we have to keep stressing here uh, the role of Toronto, the role of Hamilton. You're not competing here. You have different roles. Exactly, that is exactly correct. And you know, being in different markets, only Hamilton ourselves, we have a very leisure based market here. Um, this luxury coach service in itself provides a different segment to passengers, provides a different uh, different experience that really is, is unique to Canada. This is the first pilot project here that will be rolled out, uh, and we're very happy, along with Waterloo, to be the, the test sites for it. So, yeah, rough idea, Cole. I mean, I know you don't work for Air Canada, but how would it work, How does it, and how does it involve Hamilton International? Definitely, yeah. So, as a passenger, you're going to go online, and you can book and pick Hamilton as your option, as your starting point. Um, that was just all included in your ticket, and it basically just looks like a connection point from Hamilton onto Toronto Pearson, then onto wherever you're going. And this, this goes to their whole global network of flights. When you actually get to Hamilton to check in, it's just like checking in a normal process. You'll check your bags in, you won't see them again, um, and then you yourself will you know, relax at the airport uh, until having to board the bus and head on your way to Pearson. One of the benefits of this is that because it's all booked, is that if there was any flight disruptions along the way, because you're already booked on Air Canada, you're in their system where they'll just uh, reroute you depending on what the situation is. So this is basically, instead of making, and lots of people, especially in, in, who live in this area, a big part of it, the travel is the commute to the airport and such. So basically, you're doing everything that you would at the Toronto airport, except you're doing it in Hamilton, and then it's done, and then you just ride the, ride the bus there, and, and the rest is done once you get there. Now, luxury motor coach. Let's get that one correct here. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it looks great. I can't wait to get on it. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to paint the. Uh, it, it, it's certainly not a school bus. No, it is a luxury court uh, co- uh, coach. That's for sure. Do you know? Will there be services on this? Do you think? Will there be sandwiches or drinks or anything? <laughs> now that I can't answer for you. The, the, I'm sure landline would be happy to. But I just think I think the overall experience here. Um, will be a unique one. And I think many people who want to avoid the stresses of, of an airport, this will be a great way to do that. You can enjoy uh, a better parking experience at Hamilton with lesser fees associated with that um, mm. while in, you know, having someone drive you to the airport. So I think it's a, it's a great experience here and looking forward to seeing it succeed. So this is a test pilot, uh, as you mentioned. Where, where do you see this going? I mean, is there room for expansion here? Currently, it's going to start with six times daily going from the uh, airport uh, to and from. Uh, and each coach has a 36 uh, seat capacity. Uh, so with that, and you know, this is not only for departures, we're expecting an intake on arrivals as well for people who mm. want to end up at Hamilton. So, um, you know, where do I see us going? I do think we'll, you know, it's exceeded in the United States. I think we'll see a level of success here in Canada and hoping that we'll see it continue at at least a six times daily service moving forward. Uh, can you see with the amount of population, traffic, what have you, that this is a growing service, more need for this? Or uh, what about participation? And, it, you know, and, and for the landline company, they have seen success in this in the states where they have grown. And it's grown not only in terms of actual uh, motor coach service, but it's grown to the point where uh, carriers are able to justify 
activity based on the amount of people going through the site. So the more activity that goes through Hamilton, actual aircraft service may be another step instead of more luxury coach service. Cole Horncastle with us, Executive Manager, uh, Managing Director with the Hamilton International Airport. Uh, Air Canada will be offering a luxury bus service that takes you check-in at Hamilton and then off you go to Pearson. Uh, it sounds like a great alternative. Cole, thank you for the time. Good luck. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Uh, this is a fascinating story. I'm not sure you're aware that today is Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day. What do you mean you didn't know? And this is a fascinating story. Uh, Hamilton resident Cole Morrow uh, has firsthand experience with a disease, a heart uh, disease, heart valve disease. Uh, he was training to become a physician assistant when a classmate noticed he had a murmur. If this isn't a great excuse or reason why we should all be getting into healthcare, I don't know what else, what else is. So let's bring in Cole Morrow, uh, uh, interven, uh, interventional uh, radiology physician assistant in Hamilton. Uh, Cole, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I don't know why I couldn't say interventional, but there you go. Interventional radiology <laughs> physician assistant. Uh, assistant there you go so cole yeah. uh first of all congratulations you're off on your career and uh and and what's it like for you to be in the healthcare industry i'm sort of coming at this from the side here well you know it's it's a really uh interesting field uh it, it enables me to continuously uh le- learn new things and being a physician assistant especially i, c- I can practice in a number of different uh healthcare uh, and medicine uh, disciplines, which is uh, which has been really awesome. I was just working in surgery, and now now I'm into interventional radiology. Um, and I came over from uh, Toronto to work in uh, in Hamilton, I've wor- and I've worked in uh, Hamilton Health Sciences as well as St. Joseph's Hospital. Um, and uh, really, the the community, the the medical community here in Hamilton is really really wonderful. So I, I really love working here. So Cole, tell us your story. What happened? So I, um, when I moved over from Toronto to um, Hamilton, I switched family doctors and they asked me to do um, the, uh, a blood pressure test. Uh, and I, I, did, I tested my blood pressure and it was uh, quite abnormal. So uh, my new family doctor uh, ordered some new tests, an ultrasound of the heart, which confirmed that I had a structural uh, heart abnormality in my, my heart valve. Um, almost had completely failed, and I had some pretty extensive remodeling of my the left side of my heart as a consequence of it. So um, I uh, immediately um, was was able to be seen by a cardiovascular surgeon and a cardiologist that I'd actually worked with um, earlier at the Jurovinsky uh, Intensive Care Unit, and um, I was able to get my my surgery um, kind of within a month and. And really, I was, I, was, I was very fortunate to kind of identify that before I had any symptoms because I, I was pretty close to, to developing heart failure, and, and that would have been pretty, pretty awful. Uh, there are a lot of um, people that encounter this um, disease sort of uh, because they will go into heart failure, and um, I'm really, really happy that that, I was, that wasn't the case for me. So how were you feeling at the time, Cole? Did you know anything was wrong with you? And, and, and again, it was just this test that, that drew attention to it. You were fine, feeling fine? Well, it, it's funny because I, I mean, I've, I've always been very athletic. I was, I, I rode bike all the time. I was doing, I mean, I was going up Claremont Access maybe three or four times 
in a row, like four wow. exercises. So I felt, yeah. I felt great. Um, and, but I always noticed that my pulse was, was really, really, um, uh, just visible. I could see in my neck, my carotid pulse was really, really, uh, present. Um, yeah. and people would notice it. And, and that was really a consequence of the valve failing and, and not being able to, to uh, hold the blood in. Um, and so, uh, I noticed that I thought that was strange, but I mean, when you're in medicine and, and when you're young, you kind of think, oh, that could never happen to me. Um, and in my case it did. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really lucky that, uh, we, we have such an awesome, uh, healthcare, healthcare access in Hamilton. Uh, I was able to get that, uh, looked after. So this was a heart valve issue. Is this common? Uh, is this, uh, typical of heart failure? Um, a heart valve uh, issues uh, can be common. It's mainly more more common in, in older individuals, um, but in in some cases uh, there are uh, congenital abnormalities, or if, if individuals uh, have certain infectious diseases when they're when they're young, like rheumatic fever, they can be more predisposed to developing these heart valve diseases and and my my valve was my aortic valve but there are four other valves in the Mm -hmm. heart and so any of those can be affected from a variety of different causes um so it is it is pretty common and and one of the most important things um to that that we have one of the most important tools that we have to identify them is that um stethoscope exam that can be done at a a primary care office with a family doctor a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant so this is just listening to your heart is the best way or one of the best ways, easiest ways to detect this. Exactly. And and as you had mentioned, um, when I was in school, when I was training to be a phys- physician assistant, I, I, a couple of my classmates would listen, listen to my heart and they noticed that I had a murmur, but uh, we, we weren't really trained ears at, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if, if I had my stethoscope exam sort of, a year later or two years later when our ears were a bit more trained, maybe that would have been picked up on. Um, but uh, when I had my diagnosis, it was kind of in the middle of, of COVID. So I uh, didn't actually get into my family doctor to, to get mm. the diagnosis or to get the stethoscope check. I, I had, went to go to get an echocardiogram, which was that ultrasound of the heart. But um Ultimately, the, the my family physician's office and my nurse practitioner did the, did the great thing to um, kind of move me along and, and get a diagnosis pretty quickly and and uh, owe them my life. It was really really uh, really great care. Signs to look for, Cole. You talked about an irregular or a really hard, heavy pulse. What sort of signs would you look for? Any idea? Yeah. So um, things like uh, like palpitations. So if, if all of a sudden you feel like your heart is racing, yeah. um, if you have some um, intermittent uh, chest pains, um, and then obviously, like I had mentioned, if, if you have these very prominent pulses are sort of some of the signs that, that you can see in sort of more advanced diseases. But really, um, a lot of it is um, not very noticeable from a symptom point of view. But from a physical exam point of view, when you get a stethoscope check, um, it's quite, quite easy to hear um, any sort of heart disease. And, and so mm. that's why the getting a stethoscope check is, is just so valuable. 
Getting the medical, Cole Mora with his interventional radiology physician assistant in Hamilton and uh, celebrating Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day because he's a survivor of it. And the reminder, too, if something doesn't seem right, get it checked out. Cole, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. You know, we hear so much about technology, and <laughs> sometimes it's scary when uh, you think of uh, AI and you know, the good it can bring and, and the tool that it is, but also what happens when it falls into the wrong hands and, you know, basically using technology for evil rather than good. This is one of those stories that um, when you think of what they can do, uh, it, it, it's amazing once the, the, this technology is focused into the medical industry, how far, how far it can go. And brainwave-powered tech, is allowing kids trapped in their own bodies to play. Think about that. Uh, brainwave tech, allowing kids to actually move limbs or play in their own body or play uh, using their own bodies uh, as opposed to just the mind. It's incredible when you think about it. Let's bring in Susanna Van Dam, team, uh, team lead, clinical brain computer interface program at Holland View, or, sorry, at Holland Bluer View, and is with us now. Susanna, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I am well. Thanks so much for having me. In layperson's terms, Susanna, explain what happens here. How does it work? Okay, so uh, a brain-computer interface, or a BCI, is a system that it basically collects signals from the brain and translates them into a functional output. So that functional output could be playing a remote control car with a remote control car. It could be making a bubble machine blow bubbles. Uh, it could play a YouTube video for you. Um, essentially, we use an EEG headset to collect electrical signals from the user's brain while they're thinking about doing something specific. And then again, when they're not thinking about anything in particular. So our software can then compare the two. So when you think about uh, that specific thing, and it could be clapping your hands or giving a high five, um, then the software says, oh, yeah, you want to do something. That's your intentional pattern. I'm going to turn something on. And then whatever we hook it up to, uh, we'll, we'll start to run. That is incredible. And, and I'm jumping way ahead of myself here. Um, but what could you hook it to in the future <laughs> well, now? And we are always looking for, for new things to test out. Right now, um, the Holland Bloor View Clinical Brain Computer Interface Program is focused on recreation and play. Uh, it's our kids who, um, as you said, where, you know, they're, they don't have reliable use of their bodies and some of them are not able to communicate verbally. Um, so they don't get to play in the same way that other kids get to play. So our focus is on recreation recreation. Um, we do now have a power wheelchair trainer that they can drive. So they can, if they have a manual wheelchair, they can sit on a platform, we put on the BCI, and they can drive themselves around. So just by thinking of what they want to do or thinking about the movement, you create a reaction to that in some way. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and we try to encourage families to let us know what is going to resonate with our kids, because as I say, they, we can't always communicate with them directly. Um, so, you know, some parents will say, oh, they love it when you clap for them, or they love giving a high five, or they love having a dance party. So to the best of our ability, we encourage kids to think about that during the training. And then the the real 
the real fun is when they're actually activating something and then they start to learn that, oh, yes, you know, when I think this, that happens. What is it like when you tap into a person this way? Uh, it must just be an incredible experience, not only for the person, but for, for others who are working on this and, and, and watching. I'm thinking of, of someone who's learned to see for the first time or hear. It is very emotional. I would say more so for the observers than the kid themselves. I mean, the kids themselves mm. tend to find it hilarious um, right. and very entertaining and engaging. Um, but we see a lot of teary eyes in the room, especially in that first session um, when when families aren't quite sure what to expect. Um, and then they see yeah. their kid uh, play without anybody, inter you know, without any intermediary helping them. They just do it on their own. It's it is really emotional. I can imagine. How does this change things for the family, the individual? How do they progress with this sort of thing? Sure. Um, well, at, in our program, there are a couple of options. We do have kids who work with an occupational therapist who want to develop their BCI skill. So right now, as they said, we're, we're focused on recreation and play. The hope is as this technology progresses and develops that there will be more functional options like communication or like power chair driving, um, like accessing a computer. Uh, so our OT works with the kids to develop their skills with BCI so that when more functional activities are available, they'll be mm. good to go. Can, can, I'm jumping way ahead here, Susanna, but what about movement, uh, limbs? Is there any way this can be, can help that journey? Right. Um, there are, I mean, there are biofeedback systems and, and like neuromuscular biofeedback systems. That is not my area of expertise. Yeah. Um, but, but there are places in the world that are doing research on controlling prosthetics with brain computer interfaces. Um, it is still in the research phase, but it is definitely something that is, is hopefully on the horizon. Unbelievable. Susanna Van Dam with his team lead clinical brain computer interface program at Holland Bluer View, uh, brainwave powered tech allowing kids trapped in their own bodies to play. You can imagine what that must be like. Susanna, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for your interest. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CHML. A special committee of MPs, we talked about this last year, tasked with evaluating censored records in the firing of two scientists from Canada's top infectious diseases laboratory. This is in, in Winnipeg. Researchers who worked with China say most of the information redacted from Public Health Agency of Canada documents appears to have been withheld to shield the organization from embarrassment rather than anything to do with national security. To talk more about all of this, Stephen Chase, parliamentary, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. The latest there, date, uh, details withheld on fired scientists to save health agency embarrassment, MP says, and Stephen Chase here now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, glad to be here. So, um, you know, we've talked about this for quite a while. I remember last year this being a story, uh, and, and that, that more was, was going to be done. And then all of a sudden, or more was going to be investigated. And then all of a sudden that this couple, man and woman, uh, disappeared. And we didn't hear really much more about all of this. Um, what exactly type of work were they involved in? What are the allegations against them with sharing this information? 
So these two scientists were uh, escorted out of our top uh, biosafety, our top virus lab in Canada back in 2019, so before the pandemic. And then they were fired in, in January 2021. Uh, we have reported that their security clearances were revoked after information from CSIS was passed on to the public health agency. And we have reported that the RSMP was investigating whether they transferred uh, scientific information to China. Uh, the circumstances, however, uh, the, the full details remain uh, closed to the public because the government, uh, the Liberal government, had refused to release documents that spelled out more detail on what happened. There was as much as 250 pages that were blanked out. And so this is, a, I know, this goes back uh, to 2021. There was a showdown between opposition parties and the government. People have probably forgotten. The, the government was actually voted in contempt for refusing to produce these documents. It insisted it was national security. And it actually took then Speaker of the Commons, Anthony Rhoda, to the court to try to stop the release of these documents. That yeah. effort, uh, they... they um, was was aborted during the election campaign of 2021 by the government. So now here we are. Uh, uh, the opposition parties didn't give up. The government finally agreed to make a special committee of MPs who could see the documents and determine whether some more of the details could be released. And after some uh, back and forth with judges and so on, the MPs say they, they think there is more that should be released, a lot more. And they say, uh, there's two piles of documents, by the way. There's public health agency documents that detail this, and there's also CSIS documents. They say the vast majority of the public health agency documents should be released and that they're, they're being withheld was simply to shield PHAC with, from embarrassment. Uh, with the CISA documents, they're more circumspect. But this brings to the end uh, a fight between the opposition and the government over uh, transparency, as I say, which goes back uh, three years and even four to the actual incident. So will we get any more information out of this than we already than we didn't already know moving forward? Because, again, this sort of sounds like the election interference uh, uh, inquiries where everything's withheld for security reasons. We can't do anything for security reasons. No, we're we're going to get more. There are um, documents. So what's happened is the MPs marked up the documents and said, you should release this, this, this and this and this. And judges weighed the issues against national security and said, yeah, this can be released. So there's a lot more information coming out. But it's on the government's timetable. The government gets to decide when it comes out. So now we're waiting for it. They're, they're going to dump a bunch of documents at some point, and we're going to have to go through them and, and find what's new or what's been uncovered, un, unredacted, so to speak. So, yeah, we expect that at some point in the uh, days or weeks to come. Why are MPs assuming that it, it, this is more about embarrassment than national security? What sort of embarrassment? Yeah, so we haven't seen what they've read, but they issued a letter to all House leaders saying we've reviewed them and, and we believe that most of the, this information could be released because we believe upon reflection that it was really done to shield the government from embarrassment or, or over what happened. I mean, you had two scientists escorted out of a lab and fired mm-hmm. uh, under murky circumstances. And so that is the conclusion of the four MPs, one from each major party that did the review. So how concerned are you or should we be that this couple who worked at this highly sensitive Winnipeg lab shared information with, uh, you know, uh, apparently the Chinese Communist Party uh, and the lab in Wuhan, which we know allegedly has a connection to COVID-19? Does that raise any red flags here? I have not seen any connection to COVID-19. This is not about COVID-19. Uh, as at all. It's about uh, a bunch of other deadly viruses, uh, Ebola, uh, 
uh, among them. And th- at one point, the uh, one of the doctors involved, the medical, the scientist, uh, Dr. Chu, transferred a bunch of vials of these uh, of these drugs to the Wuhan Institute, and apparently didn't didn't do it properly. She it lacked the proper protocol. She didn't do it properly. That is on the record so far. So the, it involves a series of other uh, deadly viruses uh, that were transferred to uh, China in 2019. Were they studying these viruses for good or evil? Can we can we can we come to that conclusion? Do we know? Boy, I, I can't really go there. We don't know a lot about it. Presumably, uh, the Chinese, like us, are worried about uh, you know having to stop these kind of viruses. Uh, but of course, it's always worrisome the potential for bioweaponry and actually act, making these viruses stronger and more easily uh, transmissible. But again, that's a complete back block box as far, as far as we're concerned. We're, that's what we've been trying to get to the bottom of over the last few years. But I have to stress there's no connection to COVID-19 in this. This is, this is separate from that. All right. Stephen Chase with a senior parliamentary reporter with The Globe and Mail. And the latest from Stephen and Robert Fife. Details withheld on fired scientists to save health agency embarrassment, MPs say. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We certainly know the situation about housing. And again, we it was in the news. Uh, very odd uh, to see uh, Premier Doug Ford and Mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow, uh, bumping knuckles because uh, they have exceeded their targets in building housing and therefore qualified for uh, a fund which uh, rewards those who do so. Uh, here, it's a different story. It, it's a little bit more difficult to get things done, or is it? A plan to use a portion of a downtown Stony Creek municipal parking lot shored up Hamilton's to shore up Hamilton's affordable housing stock has fizzled in the face of stiff local competition. Uh, staff's recommendation for the two Lake Avenue South parcels died at an eight to eight council vote following a debate on Wednesday. To talk more about this, Matt Francis, Ward Five Councilor, City of Hamilton, and here now. Matt, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I'm well. How are you? So far, so good, Matt. So what are residents saying to you about this proposed uh, development and the loss of the municipal parking? It was absolutely unanimous. I uh, uh, hosted a community meeting on January the 18th and uh, at the Canadian Legion, uh, uh, Royal Canadian Legion on King Street in downtown Stony Creek. I had 200 people show up. It was standing room only, and it was unanimous. We need these parking lots. These parking lots service our, our community. They service um, veterans. They service uh, people with disabilities. Uh, they service our local small businesses, our women entrepreneurs, um, and our medical center. So it was very clear that these parking lots were well used and well needed for the community. And I supported my community's voice on this issue. What does your gut tell you about that, Matt, considering the pressure to build more homes? Because it does sound like NIMBYism. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we need more affordable housing. There's no doubt about that. But, I mean, you can't just go push forward with a plan that doesn't make any sense for a community. Um, and and it, this is going to crush the, the local BIA. I mean, I had the BIA show up to the uh, General Issues Committee yesterday in, in, uh, in support to keep the parking lots as parking. Uh, I had the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce as well, uh, the, the president of the uh, uh, the building in behind there, the, the apartment building in behind there, it's just, it would create such a disaster for the community taking away that parking. But everybody acknowledges and everybody did acknowledge 
this, you know, we do need more housing. And I did bring an alternative motion um, to uh, General Issues Committee. It did get referred to a subcommittee, but an, an alternative option within my ward. So we can still continue on that trend of getting more affordable housing, much needed affordable housing. Is this, Matt, about losing those specific parking spots downtown Stony Creek, or is this about the development that will replace it? In other words, is this really a parking issue, or is this what is going to replace the parking? No, it was truly a parking issue. When I was there in the meeting, it was unanimous. The, 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 like I said, the seniors need it, the veterans need it. And, and here's the other thing, too. One of the parking spots that were up for, that was up for debate, uh, a recommendation by city staff, um, I don't know if it was a, a, um, an oversight or what have you, but there was actually, it was, it's named Veterans Lane. The veterans in 2006 had a naming celebration and ceremony, and it was important yeah. to them. And they had a, I, I thought that was so inappropriate to even suggest building over top of something that the veterans had paid for. So that was inappropriate to me. And, and that was just a non-starter right off the, right off the bat. I, I support our, our veterans. These people fought for uh, our, our rights and freedoms in this country, and and they deserve to be recognized. And they, I, you know what, Matt? Everything. Every Matt, everybody, everybody supports the veterans, but come on, uh, I think this is a bit of a stretch. There's no reason why everyone and everything cannot be accommodated here, as opposed to everybody on the extremes, uh, either one side or the other. So let's try to keep it. Uh, let's keep it. Try to keep it down the center here. Is there no solution here? Because again, at the end of the day, um, you know. I, 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 I sort of know the area and, and the area that you're talking about, and I have a really hard time coming to terms that we can't find alternatives here, that we can't come to some sort of a solution that helps the parking issue and also gets the housing built and also uh, benefits, uh, you know, the old downtown of Stony Creek and the area uh, that everybody loves and is so charming. So, uh, you know, whether it's a parking garage, whether it's, you know, I mean, it just seems like this is on pretty weak legs. Thanks, Matt. What well, do you like? I'll, no, I, I, I respectfully disagree. And this yeah. isn't my words. This is my community's words. This is their, this is their community, and this is their words. This is I'm, I'm showing up to. to I understand. I understand. I, their, I understand, Matt. Their and I understand that, Matt, that it's your job to be the voice for them, and, and that's what you're supposed to do. And, and I totally get that. But, you know, it, it seems that we're having this debate in every corner of the city while, you know, we're listening to stories in downtown Toronto how they're exceeding their targets. So, again, I mean, you know, there's a beautiful uh, community of Stony Creek. There's a beautiful town of Dundas. There's a beautiful town of Ancaster. There's a beautiful town. Like, sooner or later, we got to stop with that and start actually preparing for the future, which is a greatly expanded population so you know is there no room for parking and housing in that area at all because you know again i find it hard to believe there isn't a solution here well let me just say in terms of housing targets we did hit those targets this year we, we hit those targets i'm not i'm not talking about affordable housing i'm just talking about our housing stock we hit those targets uh, so are you getting money are you getting money from the premier for this uh, we uh, we there's there's a, a a likelihood I'm I'm sure I mean that was the objective was to hit these uh, hit these targets so um, you know we'll, we'll see where that where that lands but um, I know you're just talking about that previously on the show uh, but we we are hitting our housing targets which is important and, and in terms of these parking lots specifically if you were to build underground parking the whole purpose is for it to be affordable 
And it, once you start adding a parking garage, underground parking, you, you defeat the purpose. It's no longer affordable. I offered up a solution in Riverdale, a viable solution. I actually was just with the Ward 5 trustee who is fully in support of, uh, of moving forward on that project, which is on school board property. Uh, we leased a portion of the land there. So he's in, he's also in full support. It's a, it's a cutting edge solution and it's, it's a viable option to move forward on. And it could be. Why not? Why not both? Why not both, Matt? Why not both? Because we need, we need both. We definitely need more, but I will always stand with the residents of my ward who unanimously, and not just that, a 2,500 signature petition that they sent forward. Where have you ever seen a local petition with that much unanimous support on it's, it's it's unprecedented for a local issue to have that much support on so it was unanimous and and i'm, I'm happy to happy to stand un, unapologetically with my residents no and i totally understand that matt what about urban boundary expansion because if you know we're not doing this then we gotta you know everybody's barking that we can't go out that way and again you know hamilton is famous for one step forward two steps back watching every area around us grow well we wonder why it's not happening here you know and again i understand you're completely representing your constituents matt but but something's got to give here I, like I said, we, we've we've hit our housing uh, our targets, and uh, yeah, we we are doing it within the firm urban boundary that council and, and councils of the past. Where 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 is all where is all the housing then? If we're hitting, if we're doing it within the urban boundaries, if we're hitting targets, where's the housing? Then why aren't we stopping if we're hitting all the targets? I don't think we're stopping. I, I mean, last time I went to the planning committee, it's been pretty busy. Uh, we've it's well, I can't, Matt. I, I I just don't think any of us are hitting targets, and that's why we're in the position we are. But we're out of time, and I understand, Matt Francis, sticking up for your constituents, Ward Five Councillor, City of Hamilton, uh, Stony Creek, saying no to the municipal parking lot and uh, and affordable housing there. Matt, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. <laughs> This came down earlier today, and it was on the news. You certainly heard about it. A man who killed four members of a Muslim family and injured a fifth in London committed an act of terrorism. Justice Renee Pomerantz concluded today. To talk more about all of this, Ben Harrietha is with us, reporter with 980 CFPL in London and here now. Ben, thank you for the time. Uh, I I can imagine what it must be like for you today and for everybody in that courtroom. Uh, What was it like in that courtroom today? I, I think definitely a lot of people felt that uh, a sense of closure. I know myself, I did uh, speaking with some of the family members afterwards. They said that they felt, you know, a little bit of closure, but that uh, there's still a lot of healing that needs to be done. No amount of uh, uh, no court verdict or court sentencing is going to bring back the four people who are lost. They're not going to bring back uh, that uh, poor, uh, you know, their sons. That's the kid's not going to get his parents back. So. There's still a lot more healing, they said, to be done and a lot more to be done to combat Islamophobia in Canada. Uh, obviously, the justice concluded that this was an act of terrorism. How, how, what was the reaction to that? I, uh, pretty much everyone was very, uh, was very happy that that, was, uh, that that came down, that, you know, that basically the judge pointed at him and went, yeah, he is a white nationalist terrorist. And it's not just he killed these people, and they just they just happened to be Muslim. It was, I think, I think the family was very uh, was very satisfied with that decision from Justice Renee Pomerantz. Anybody critical of that decision, Ben, uh, just with the relation or not being related to any other terrorist activity or organization? The judge made uh, the conclusion that that didn't matter. 
Yeah, no, I haven't seen uh, anyone be super critical of it, uh, uh, of the decision so far. I'm sure there's some people on social media who are uh, possibly uh, uh, not too pleased with that decision, but uh, no one in the courtroom uh, or anyone I spoke to outside of the courthouse uh, thought that that was the uh, incorrect decision. She, uh, she, the Justice Renee Pomerantz, she men- mentioned that uh, essentially there was no way it wasn't terrorism because if it was plain and deliberate, then he was planning and deliberating a terrorist act. And if it was a terrorist act, then he was planning and deliberating it. So Either way, it was going to be uh, she, he was going to probably be uh, designated a terrorist by the justice, and obviously doesn't. And again, I, I don't know if I'm going in and out of your area here because I don't know either, Ben. But it it doesn't have to be linked to a other terrorist activity or organization or in order to get that designation. No, it does not actually. Veltman made a made a point actually to not uh, associate himself with any terrorist activity, which yeah, because he he said he didn't want to be put on a watch list. He didn't want to be associated with any of them. So it really all it is 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 the uh is the intent to intimidate a section of the public which he mm. intended to do and he unfortunately did. Uh how is the family moving forward? I mean any any thoughts or reports there of of how they're coping with all of this? When we asked them they said uh you know they said that this is um they they said that this isn't you know a closing on the whole story that started on June 6th, but rather just another chapter. There's still a lot more to be done. Obviously, you know, this reopens a lot of wounds. This entire trial has reopened a lot of wounds for people. And now finally they can take a moment and be like, okay, well, that part's done. Now we can possibly grieve uh, uh, properly knowing that the man who is responsible is, is, uh, you know, justice has been served in that regard. And uh, they also spoke about how important it is that, um, going forward, they and other people continue to uh, fight against hate and Islamophobia because we we saw that this is not just a thing that uh, affects the Muslim community or even the London community. It was a national thing that people came together uh, over this. Um, uh, Four killed, one survived. What do we know about that poor child? Um, Well, we know that he, in a victim impact statement that we received back in January, we know that he, uh, he broke, I believe, either one or both of his legs. He had to have a, he had to actually have a plate put into his leg and he'll have to, once he has that removed, he'll have to essentially learn how to walk again. And that's, uh, so I think he's around 12 uh, now. He was around nine when the, when the attack uh, first happened. So it's, uh, He's being cared for by his family, but uh, as it is, you know, I'm sure it's not going to be easy growing up without uh, with most of your family gone. Horrific story. Ben Haritha with us, reporter 980 CFPL in London. Uh, Judge Rene Pomerantz today concluded that the man who killed four members of a Muslim family injuring a fifth, it was a act of terrorism. Ben, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Jugmeet Singh, NDP leader, on the show tomorrow. Uh, and speaking of Jugmeet Singh, his private members bill, which aims to bring down the cost of basic essentials, uh, passed second reading at the House of Commons with support from the opposition. Uh, but what will this do? What can 
uh, politicians do, other than, of course, perhaps uh, trying to create incentive for more mm-hmm. competition and less price fixing, what can we really do, especially after we've seen a parade of CEOs uh, back and forth through Ottawa since all this discussion started? Let's bring in Peter Grant, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, here now. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hope you're well, too. Uh, obviously, Peter, this is a sensitive issue, a sensitive issue with um, with most Canadians, affordability, especially groceries and such. Is there anything Jugmeet Singh can do or this private member's bill can do uh, in actually and actually bring those prices down, especially after what we've seen in the trades with the CEO and the parades of, of CEOs and such uh, answering to all of this? Uh, other than bringing more competition in and, and that sort of thing, is there really much that politicians can do here? Yeah, not really in the short term. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, with a private member's bill, it can't uh, involve public spending. So, you know, things that maybe are not very good policy, but you could do in terms of like subsidizing the price of goods and so on are certainly, you know, off the table. And I don't think that's sort of part of the a, a serious conversation. You know, you could set, uh, you know, maximum prices for things or minimum prices for things. I mean, we see the provincial government you know, uh, talking about how they're keeping beer prices down and so on for consumers. So, you know, there are those tools, but those likewise, you know, people, uh, uh, you know, aren't taking too seriously. I mean, we have a minimum price of beer, but, uh, you know, no one's actually selling beer at that price. Uh, So, yeah, a lot of it is kind of a longer term thing about how do you uh, ensure uh, a degree of competition uh, in the market? How do you prevent things like we've seen, uh, you know, in the past decade in terms of the, the fixing of prices, like the price of bread? You know, those are the, the kinds of questions where there's the ability to intervene, but it's certainly not going to bring down your uh, grocery bill before the next federal election. You meant uh, made reference to to beer, uh, Peter, but um, that's a tax. This is something completely different, is it not? I mean, are you suggesting that the the government should lower taxes on groceries? Because that that's just lowering that's that's an accelerator tax which goes up by inflation every year, and 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 they're talking about lowering that as the province has. But are there taxes that the grocery stores get that should be? Uh, that should be reduced so that can be passed along to consumers or is this referring to the carbon tax yeah i mean i was referring to the minimum price of beer that they have in ontario to try and prevent us from all becoming uh, reprobates i guess but uh, you know you can make the case i don't see how those two i don't i don't see how those two issues are even related you're talking about a minimum price for beer uh, versus grocery prices and trying to uh and, and trying to maintain prices and not have grocers you know, increase them beyond uh, what people can afford. We're not talking about cutting taxes, though, with groceries. Are we talking about cutting taxes? Uh, yeah, I don't really see that uh, as a likely, uh, you know, likely source. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, there are arguments that the food system has become more expensive, you know, with the carbon tax and so on. And so you you see that kind of uh, argument uh, you know, presumably you could have, you know, flow through effects from, you know, cutting the carbon tax, although that would be countered then by the loss of the tax credits people are getting, which are actually kind of redistributive at the lower end of the the income ladder. So, you know, you could play around with that. It's not going to have too much impact on the overall uh, ability of people to buy groceries. Uh, You know, I mean, there's also forms of, uh, you know, regulation that you could do over time that might increase competition. So we've talked largely about bringing in more, you know, uh, competition in terms of, you know, grocers from other countries. Uh, but there's also ways in which, um, 
you know, uh, things are set up around the sort of size of bays at grocery stores and so on that favor the large grocers over, you know, smaller competitors or the ability of uh, smaller suppliers to get their products on shelves. So, you know, there's a variety of different uh, marketing aspects, which, you know, I'm not an expert in in terms of food policy, but that would be another place where you could look to to try and increase uh, competition, you know, where the large grocers have been able to set up a series of regulations, which makes sense in many ways from health and safety point of view, but maybe are done in a way, too, that tries to exclude a greater degree of competition. Um, March 1st, Jugmeet Singh says uh, he needs something concrete on pharmacare. If not, there will be repercussions. Where do you think this is going? Uh, I think uh, it's most likely to go in the direction of uh, an end of the supply and confidence agreement, which I think both the the Liberal government and the NDP see as kind of reaching its end as a useful political ploy. So I think the Liberals uh, feel that it's prevented them from doing things that are going to be popular with the middle class. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what what you know their thinking is there, but I, I think they feel like. They've been weighed down by this, and I think the NDP, uh, likewise, wants to make some distance between themselves and the Liberals ahead of the next federal election. So I, I would presume that we'll see uh, an end of that agreement and returning to the situation we had before it of uh, the Liberal government having to find support on a case-by-case basis, uh, especially when it's coming forward with uh, money bills. Uh, NDP's Jagmeet Singh numbers are lower than what the Prime Minister's are in many situations. Is this the reason for doing them? They've got to try to rebound if there is a looming election? Yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, Mr. Singh has to make the case that he's something other than the Liberals. Uh, You know, he's really, in making this decision of the supply and confidence agreement, he got dental care. Uh, but beyond that, uh, really, the ability of the NDP to make a lot of noise uh, or, or to come up with a distinct position has been emptied out. I mean, this uh, private member's bill in terms of grocery prices would be an example of one of the few places where Mr. Singh has really you know, stood out from the Liberals. And so ending the supply and confidence agreement would allow him to more strongly set out what he's promising that's different to Canadians in the next election. Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Uh, Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. Uh, when you're sitting around the kitchen table tonight, uh, what are you talking about? Pornhub? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, can we please get back to the program and talk about affordability issues and making uh, life a bit easier for us all? Uh, let's bring in Pierre Polyev. He's in London, was in London today to talk about various issues and has offered his services here to talk to us today. Pierre Polyev, federal leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and here now. Pierre, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Very well, talking with London residents about our common sense plan to axe the tax, build the homes, fix the budget, stop the crime. London and Hamilton, I might add. All right, um, uh, lots of questions here, and Pierre. Windsor. And, and there you go. Kitchener, uh, Waterloo. That's right. Sense plan in all those towns. Uh, gender issues becoming a, a flashpoint, it seems, in the last uh, week or so. Are, are you concerned that the Prime Minister will use this as another wedge issue? Is this a priority or a distraction? He will use it as a distraction, and why wouldn't he? After eight years of Justin Trudeau, housing costs have doubled. Uh, The price of food uh, from his carbon tax on farmers has driven 2 million people to food banks. Uh, We've had the worst inflation, fastest rising interest rates in four decades under Trudeau. 
uh, and we have crime and chaos in our streets. So if you had that record, you'd be doing everything in your power to distract. Uh, the good news is that life was not like this before Justin Trudeau won't be like this after he's gone. My common sense plan will axe the tax, build the homes, fix the budget, stop the crime. And that's my focus. Uh, the liberals are constantly saying, and, and I know you've addressed this on the show, but I, I want some clarification if it's possible, are uh, constantly saying that you don't have a climate plan, that you there is no conservative plan. How do you address that? Well, the, the common sense plan that we do have, which is technology over taxes, I would uh, remove bureaucracy and build incentives for the production of clean, green, emissions-free electricity. That is by safely approving more hydroelectric, nuclear, carbon capture and storage, uh, tidal wave power, so that we can feed the, the grid with clean emissions-free tech uh, electricity that will power an electric economy. We should also start mining the lithium, cobalt, graphite, and other battery minerals that we have right here in Ontario by removing Trudeau's red tape so that we can uh, uh, get the uh, the mines going in, in northern Ontario uh, at, in the ring of fire. So let's let's green light green projects. Let's lower the cost of, of clean carbon-free energy rather than raising the cost of oil and gas and home heating that Canadians still need. Uh, it's interesting because it, it seems that we're pushing EV technology and electric vehicles, and I'm all for renewables and that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, but then the uh, environment minister says he's not interested in building any new road projects. We know there's a housing shortage. We know there's a population explosion that's fueling a housing shortage and, and, and a healthcare crisis for that matter. How do you build more homes and not build more roads? How do you balance this out? It seems as if we're talking out of both sides of our mouth here. Well, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah. I'll build both roads and homes. Uh, now we understand why our road infrastructure has been deteriorating for eight years of Trudeau, who's not worth the cost. It's because uh, there, his radical uh, minister is not only in favor of a 61 cent a litre carbon tax on your gas and heat, uh, he also wants to stop roads and he wants to ban internal combustion engines. So you can't buy a Honda Civic or a Toyota Corolla or another affordable vehicle. You'll be stuck paying 70 grand for an electric car. You can't afford it in many places that doesn't work over long distances and cold temperatures. So it's totally impractical. My common sense plan will cut the red tape for road building so that we can get projects done quickly. We can build roads to, to key resource projects to improve con connectivity to our rural communities. Uh, and also to open land masses where we can build the homes that house the next generation of families. Uh, lots of chatter about conflict in the world and such, and Canada again, uh, NATO pressuring Canada this week to up the ante and, and fulfill its obligations to NATO. Will you, if elected Prime Minister, or when, uh, will you make an attempt to hit those NATO targets? How do you respond to that? I will make that attempt. Um, after eight years of Trudeau, Canada's weak, poor, and defenseless because he's gutted the military to balloon the bureaucracy and waste billions on Bosch procurement, uh, like by the delay in the purchase of the F-35s. We could have had those fighter jets by now if he had just gone ahead with the previous Conservative government's decision to buy them rather than uh, grandstanding, cancelling it, and then six years later flip-flopping 
at a cost of billions of extra dollars and years behind. So we, he couldn't even defend Canada against a Chinese uh, spy balloon. If you can't shoot down a balloon, <laughs> for God's sakes, I mean, you worry that we're going to be invaded by a children's birthday party uh, with balloons now invading our country. Um, we would have had the, the F-35s had it not been for Trudeau's decision, and we could have shot down any uh, unwanted object over our skies. Um, so I'm going to streamline the procurement, focus on best value for best price. We're going to cut back on back office bureaucracy, and we're going to cut foreign aid to terrorist dictators and multinational bureaucracies and put that money back at our military. In other words, bring it home. We know, obviously, you're against the carbon tax and want to axe the tax. Your thoughts of the federal government renaming the carbon tax or the payout for it? It's putting lipstick on a pig, and it's more proof that both the carbon tax and Justin Trudeau are not worth the cost. The parliamentary budget officer says 60% of families pay more in taxes than they get back in, in these fake rebates. Uh, the, the, the tax is driving up the cost of food uh, because if you tax the farmer who grows the food and the trucker who ships the food, you tax all who buy the food. And this at a time, we've got 2 million people lining up in food banks. And finally, the Trudeau government has admitted they have no evidence to prove that it reduces emissions. They couldn't produce a single shred of paper that and that analyzed the effectiveness. So it's not doing anything for the environment. It's not a, a climate plan. It's a tax plan. Pierre Polyev and the Common Sense Conservatives will axe the tax. Uh, U.S. election this year, lots of chatter about Donald Trump and who will be the next uh, president of the United States. Uh, your reaction to that in, in dealing with a president like Donald Trump, a lot of the liberals still compare you to him. Your thoughts and the possibility of dealing with him? I think they, if, if, if it's Trump, and we don't know, it could be Biden, but they'll look across the table at Trudeau and laugh. They see him as a clownish, uh, unserious, and weak leader. And they see he has a weak economy, and he's weak in the military. They'll walk all over him, just like they did last time. Uh, I'm, I'm the leader with the, the brains and the backbone to defend Canada's interests. They, and I'll, what I'll do is go to Washington, meet with Biden or, or Trump, and I'll say, look, we'll strengthen our combined continental force for a defense and our military if you'll stop attacking our economy why don't you get out of the way and let us sell our softwood lumber tariff free stop uh, attacking our construction companies with buy america approve the keystone pipeline that will bolster our economy and help us fund a stronger national defense which is in the strategic interests of the entire continent that's the kind of transaction that i think will work with either president biden or prospective uh, um, presidency uh, of um, Mr. Trump, regardless of who wins. Uh, and that's the common sense approach I will take to stand up for our country. Because I really only care about our interests in this country. The Americans will take care of themselves. We've got to take care of Canada. Pierre Polyev with us, federal leader of the Conservative Party of Canada in London today. Pierre, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am okay. Scott, how are you doing? 
I'm doing fine, thank you. Um, I, I know you're going to talk about the uh, Stony Creek parking lot and the housing and the nimbyism and the uh, not expanding the urban boundaries and where the heck do we go from here uh, coming up in your show. But uh, I, I wanted to run by you. So there's a, a news conference today in Toronto, and it's uh, Premier Doug Ford and it's Olivia Chow, Mayor of Toronto. And he, I'm surprised he didn't have one of those giant checks like you see in the lotto commercials. And he's, he's praising her uh, and how much money she is going to receive from a fund because they have uh, met and exceeded their housing target starts, which I just thought was amazing considering the conversations that we usually have about shortages of which we know there are. So then I'm talking to Matt Francis from Ward 5 in regard to uh, the Stony Creek and the parking lot and the building of the housing and whatever and so on and so forth. And he alluded to, well, he came out and said, well, we're going to meet our housing targets. So are we expecting the premier to show up with a giant check, too, and say, congratulations, Hamilton, you get this piece of the pie because you have exceeded your targets? Uh, first of all, there was a giant check that uh, that the city of Toronto got, one of those uh, Michael Scott uh, fun run for rabies uh, checks, yes, from the office. There was one of those, so I was kind of surprised, although not really. Um, <laughs> so... I don't know how long ago it was now, you know, you lose track these days, but months ago I had the mayor on and we were talking about housing and things like that. And I can't remember, Scott, I would have to go back because I didn't know we were going to be talking about this. I can't remember the exact number, but the mayor talked about how there were tens of thousands of houses, new houses, houses being built, houses that are in the system in this city that are been approved, but haven't been started. Yeah. Well, sitting in the developer's laps. Well, it, it, whether it's been approved or in the process of being approved, like it was an extraordinary number in, in the tens of thousands. And I, I, at memory serves, it was well over 30,000, something like that. And I said, well, what does that actually mean? And what that actually means, as I understand it is almost anything. Like we're talking, we're not talking about houses where shovels are about to be put in the ground and housing units are about to be yeah. built. This is everywhere along the way from Scott Thompson had an idea and got a permit and drew up some plans for housing to we're just putting the final window pane in and this thing is ready to go. But most of them by the sounds of it are simply in the, still the development. I don't mean developers, the development process. They're not, yeah. but is that... When we're talking about Toronto, is that a housing start? Is that a, like, I don't know in, in, in government I, I terms, I, I, what is I, I a housing know. start? I don't know what that is, Scott, and I really don't care. All I know is that would be the same for everybody. So if one city's meeting the threshold, why aren't the rest? I don't care what the, what the, where the bar well, is. No, I don't and, care what the level is. And, but at the end of the day, I mean, I remember asking the mayor of Burlington, Marianne Mead Ward about this last year. Oh, we're hitting our targets. We're on tap to hit it. Then, then why is there a problem? If we're hitting and doing everything we can, why is there a shortage? And that's my, my point and, and sorry for being protracted. It's it, buck passing. Well, is it, is Toronto, does Toronto really have this many homes that have truly in, by the, by the human, who, by who the cares? human. It's no. getting them the check. I know, but they, by they're the, crossing a finish line. Who cares where that finish line is? They're crossing a finish line that no one else is. 
if my, my point is if by every human definition of a housing start, which to me, if you're starting housing, that means it is being built. It is not yeah. a theoretical idea. If Toronto has truly got all these homes in the works, in process, there is a physical building project in place, then sure reward them. And if we don't have these building projects in projects in the works, because it's all just an idea phase at this point, then we shouldn't be rewarded. But I, I don't, the problem with so many of these things, Scott, it's about definitions and you can make a definition be almost whatever you want it to be. I don't, I don't care about the definition as long as everybody's attempting to get what that definition is. And you can't sit because one person has it. Well, their definition is different than what our definition is. No, the definition of a win and getting the finance is you hit this threshold, whatever it is. And Toronto appears to be hitting that. Are the rest of us? That's what we don't know because the, because we don't know how to, I don't think people know how to define or there's no acceptable or agreed upon definition yeah, of I, what's I, a housing I my, start. I guess my point is no matter what we agree or disagree as to what a housing start is, it would be the same in every center Agreed. that qualifies for the money. Agreed. So who? So again, it, it's Toronto's getting it. Okay, let's investigate if they're doing enough to actually get it. But what are the others not doing? Because they're not getting. And it. that's my that's point. That's my point. That, and, and and so we're saying <laughs> we're we're saying the same thing. I think the okay. problem the problem is that you were that every different region is using the word housing start. And I don't think everybody. I, is, I don't. I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I say if you want to get this money, it's very very clear what you need to do to get it. I don't think the housing start is different in one community to the other. I think what you need to do to qualify for these funds is very, very much laid out for everybody, every community. Okay. But each community may be defining it themselves to sound better, like they're doing more where they're not necessarily doing this. I don't believe every city across this province is doing exactly the same in housing. I don't. No. I don't. And, and yet we use the same word to define certain things while the results are very different from place to place. I have no idea, Scott, I, I, you and I are sitting here talking. I have no idea if Toronto truly has more on a per capita basis, more housing. Well, because they're getting the money, because they're getting the money, we'll assume they got the threshold, which permitted them to get the money. Clearly the others aren't reaching that threshold, no matter what it is. But they're saying they are. So yes, I agree. The province is probably looking oh, at this with a different they're definition. They're saying they are. Yeah, well, you know, they could be saying they are. To me, and again, I, I guess uh, it's here's politics. The confusion Scott. is it's politics. Uh, here's the here's the confusion. You know, the mayors are saying, "Yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it." Well, the point is, are you getting the money? And no, they're not. Because if they were, you'd be hearing about it. You'd be hearing about the prime minister, the premier coming in and and giving them money. All right, we're out of time. I'm getting yelled at in both ears. All right, Scott, have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Frank. I asked my wife, why do you keep buying plants when you just wind up killing them? And she said, just to remind you what I'm capable of. Oh, keep right except to pass. 